Hey, it's Matt Robeson. It's Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts. And this is the promised part two of my interview with Dr. Daniel Cox. He's a social science expert, a polling expert. And in part one, we talked about some of the polling and politics of the moment. But now in part two, we're getting into some deeper questions. Dr. Cox published a really fascinating look at what polling data tells us about attitudes about issues that have to do with LGBT rights and equality. And there's been a real shift in what's going on there. It got us into these really deep issues about how social opinions change and how sometimes survey information doesn't really capture the nuance of what may be going on in people's heads when you have complicated issues like this that present people with things that they haven't thought about or maybe conflicting impulses. So we got into that and we also got into another article that he wrote recently about how Americans have lost a sense of shared purpose, a sense of common mission, a sense of anything that ties us together anymore and what we could maybe do about that. So I hope you enjoy part two and here we go. Let's go to politics adjacent discussions. Let's do the beyond politics stuff. I think for my money, the most fascinating piece you've written, by the way, if people want, they can subscribe. Where, where can people find your stuff? Yeah, so I write occasionally for Liberal Patriot, but uh, more often than not, I'm writing under my own uh, newsletter, uh, American Storylines, which is also a Substack newsletter, and cover a, a wide range of stuff, social capital, religion, and politics. American Storylines. There we go. So you wrote this tremendous piece recently on American, what polling says about Americans' acceptance of gay Americans, transgender Americans. This is an incredibly hard topic to talk about. And in fact, I think that's one of, that's one of the features of what we're seeing here. I don't want to try to summarize it for you. It was just, it was a, a really nuanced and really interesting discussion that you provided. So walk us through it. What are you seeing in the numbers that's so fascinating in Americans' evolving opinions about LGBT Americans? What we're seeing in some of the polling and looking at some trend questions that are asking the same question over time, uh, such as one that the Wall Street Journal asked about whether society has gone too far in accepting transgender people. And we're seeing just really significant shifts with people are much more likely to say that we've gone too far now. And so we've seen this kind of pushback in another polling. Gallup showed the same thing when it comes to acceptability uh, of, uh, I think, homosexuality, which is a long trend that they have too. And again, they're seeing a decline for the first time in roughly 15, 20 years of, of polling. And so one of the, the questions I had, what's going on, what's happened? And I came down uh, as someone who's, who studies a lot of these issues as part of my day job, that same-sex marriage, which has seen unprecedented support, almost compared to any other issue, right? This issue of same-sex marriage has become more supported among the public than basically anything else, going from 30-point support in the like late 90s to 70% support today. And it was unique. I, I argue in the piece that basically that what happened was a lot of people from the same-sex marriage experience that sort of said the entire culture around these issues and the entire way Americans understand human sexuality has shifted and, and same-sex marriage proves it, but that turned out not to be the case. That when you ask about a whole bunch of other questions, transgender athletes, it turns out attitudes are much more nuanced and more conflicted and that people have really complicated views on these issues and they happen to think that they are extraordinarily complex as human sexuality is. 
So in one way, it's not all that surprising that there is this. And I think what's happened is folks uh, on the left, I think, just got it wrong when they, and this, I think the same thing happened with Barack Obama, right? That, that this seminal moment in American culture and politics was going to usher in this dramatic transformation of American society. And while it was a really important event, it didn't really signify that racism was prejudice is over in the case of Obama's election. And for same-sex marriage, it didn't really mean that uh, American's fundamental understanding and acceptance uh, of people uh, had just transformed. Again, there's still folks with a, a lot of varying attitudes on these issues. And I think that's that's okay. We, we There should be a amount of, we shouldn't think that things are going to change overnight. So you, you're, say you're a 60 year old, you felt the same way for your 60 years, then suddenly, okay, yeah, I'm thinking about this thing a little bit differently, but it's a, it's an evolution. And even Obama talked about his, his views on same-sex marriage back when he became supportive. And he said, said it's been an evolution. And I think for a lot of people, that's the, the journey they've been on. And we shouldn't expect an evolution to occur overnight. For a lot of these issues, it's not as clear cut. There are people on either side with what most people would say have pretty legitimate claims and interests that are in conflict. And, and I think that is what a lot of the, the polling data is showing us now. If people want a deeper dive on the point you were just making about the uniqueness of the marriage issue, I recommend the interview that I did with Sasha Eisenberg, the author of The Engagement, which is the most comprehensive history yet done, perhaps that will ever be done, on the 25-year struggle, legal struggle, that led to marriage equality in America. It was a fascinating discussion. This was not an intentional strategy that was uh, adopted from the outset. It was something that kind of the gay rights movement fell into and that, as you say, had many unique elements to it. It turned out that it came at a cultural moment where there was a, a wonderful confluence of media figures that Americans felt comfortable with that presented the idea of, hey, you may have been thinking about gay Americans this way, but really you should be thinking about them this way. They're your awesome neighbors and they're the people who will make you straight dudes look great. And that cultural momentum was paired with an ingrained sensibility about fairness and a legalistic argument about marriage in particular that really resonated with Americans. And I think what you say really stuck with me about this idea of that's not a transferable set of conditions to other LGBT issues, especially when you get to complicated and nuanced questions that impinge on other areas of American life when it comes to transgender issues. You wrote, when it comes to transgender issues, there's also plenty of evidence of substantial disagreement among Americans. How should we think about fairness when it comes to the participation of transgender athletes in high school sports? Americans strongly reject discrimination against transgender people, but the lengths they think society should go in order to accommodate transgender athletes is less clear cut and polling reflects the sense of conflict. And if you could indulge me telling a story, a personal story for a moment, I coach my daughter's soccer team. She's 12 now. I've coached them for several years. And when we started out, our first season together, we were winless and it was great. I had a moment where we were getting slaughtered in a game and I let it show and I slumped my shoulders. And one of the, one of the kids looked up at me and said, it's okay, coach. 
we don't mind. They just had such a great attitude the whole time. Our next season together, we were about 500. Our next season together, we made the playoffs and we lost in the semi. And last season, we were undefeated and we went to the championship game. And I had been preaching for years that wins and losses didn't matter to me. But I wanted this for them. I wanted them to win. And we did. We eked it. We were down one nothing at half. We eked it out and we won. And the experience for them, the joy for them, the sense of closure and accomplishment, I hope that it's something that sticks with them their whole lives. The feeling that if they put their minds to this kind of effort, that they could have that kind of achievement. And I don't know how I would feel if it were presented to me that in that championship game, we were going to play against a team that had a player who was transgender and who had perhaps had some of the physical advantages that we know that male athletes have. And if they had not been able to have that closure, that experience, I would have felt very conflicted about this. And I say this with the fact that there are friends and family members on this team who are transgender and they're great kids. And I'd be delighted to coach these kids. And it's exactly what you wrote here that I believe, I strongly reject discrimination against transgender people of any kind. I want absolute equality. And even beyond that, I would want any of these transgender kids to feel safe and comfortable in their own skin and loved and to have the same opportunity to engage in sports that any other kid would have. I, of course, want all of those things. And at the same time, I want my girls to have this experience goes with being a girls team. And I have not worked out yet how to reconcile those two impulses. I think, I can't prove this, but I think that my own internal sense of conflict about this is where most Americans are. And the thing that really takes this full circle for me is that one of the things that the human rights campaign and that marriage equality campaigners did so artfully in the 2000s was they met Americans where they were. They didn't try to force change. They, they were pushing for equality. Don't get me wrong. They didn't try to judge people if they were taking some time getting there. They would push. It was not in a judgmental way. And there are people in our society who are bigots. There are people who, as Hillary Clinton put it, are deplorables. But we can't beat deplorables by being insufferables. And it bothers me when my conflict about this issue, my trying to figure out how to reconcile two impulses that I have in myself is portrayed as bigotry, as hatred. I don't think it is. And I think that's hard. I, I, I think that there is, whether it's engineered by right-wing media or not, I think that there is some backlash that you're picking up in these polling numbers. And I think people who are taking some time to adjust and figure this out, who are not among the deplorables, who are not driven from a place of bigotry and are trying to figure this out, do feel like that's the way they're being betrayed and it's pushing them. They're having a thermostatic reaction to it. That was an awfully long rant. What do you think? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. 
Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. You can listen to the Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I think it's a perfect kind of what an example of what a lot of people are experiencing, these kind of irreconcilable feelings of understanding there's a group of people who disproportionately face violence and discrimination, are often estranged from family members, have or social outcomes in many cases. And so the the want and desire to help support those folks with the idea that sports and athletics should be about fairness, right? That, that everyone, we should be on an equal, quote unquote, an equal playing field. And how do you resolve that? It's, it's really difficult. I think to, to your point, saying that if you aren't completely on board with the human rights campaign on some of these issues that you're the part of the problem, I think is, I think politically short-sighted, but also not the where people really are. It doesn't reflect where they are and how they're wrestling with these really incredibly complex experiences and ideas. Goes to show that there are issues that our politics are poorly equipped to deal with. The idea of a democracy is that it's supposed to be flexible. It's supposed to be resilient and adaptable and that there can be this kind of evolution. One of the beautiful things that we've seen in the last 20 some odd years is going from a place where, and I know that the data is a little mixed on this, but at least anecdotally, the intent into from Karl Rove was to put anti-marriage equality referenda on the ballot in select states in order to goose turnout to help Republican candidates. We're, we've come from a place where that was a political reality to a, a far different place. And it's because we're in a democracy. It's because we have the American politics that we have this ability to adapt and self-heal and to change. And I fear that one of the things that's happened in the last 20 years is that we've lost a lot of that ability. We, our politics is very badly equipped to deal with a nuanced, complicated issue like this that involves science and medicine and social science and human emotion and psychology and sexuality. They're issues that we are having a hard time grappling with. And I'm saying all this in part as a bridge to one more topic that I want to tackle. And this is six months old, so you may have to go back in your uh, synapses for this one. You wrote a really interesting piece. It was a little different. It wasn't chock full of data, as a lot of your pieces are, where you argued that you think as Americans, we've lost our sense of national purpose. And we've lost kind of these unifying themes that maybe would allow us to, to deal better politically with complicated issues, or to at least feel a, a sense of unity, regardless of questions that divide us. What made you write that? And more important, how do we get a sense of national purpose back? Yeah, I think part of the, the impetus for look, looking at this idea and playing with this idea comes out of the work I do on social capital. We, we've done work on friendship and social isolation and found that we're in a historically bad place in terms of the number of friends we have, the amount of time we spend socializing. Men in particular have seen a really significant decline in the number of close friends that they have and can rely on. And so part of my interest lies there. And the other is political polarization has really made any kind of progress on big, supposedly non-political issues much more difficult, right? That there's winners and losers, politics is a zero-sum contest. 
And I think that there are some cases which that's always going to be true, right? That one side is going to lose out. You look at sort of the green energy revolution, that's certainly true. But in, in other ways, I thought that there are opportunities for us all to put our two feet on the ground and grab a shovel and dig in and work together in a way that we know the social science says that is a key part of building a community, of building consensus and feelings of belonging is not just throwing people in the same room and having them talk to each other, but having them work on a project together that they think is important so that they they get there, they become invested in it. And they become invested in not only their, the people around them, but this idea of what America is and, and can be in the world. My outside the box suggestion is that we find a convenient race of aliens to invade so that we can come together. Of course, the brilliant movie Don't Look Up suggests to me that even that would not have a unifying effect on us. And you'd have the MAGA people saying, shouldn't we commercially exploit this war to... Anyway, my inside the box idea is mandatory national service. I know it's there are nerds who believe in this, but like in Israel, you got to do your military service or you got to do national service. It's usually military service. I'd be in favor of that. I'm not saying everyone needs to go into the army, but I, I have actually written this before that I think as a form of social engineering, yeah, I called it social engineering. I think everyone needs to either be in the military or spend two years in national service. And here are the rules. You go, you have to, you, you are put into a unit with people from all around the country, right? Like you don't go as like a group of New Yorkers and a group of Tennesseans. You get all mixed up and your phones are taken away from you and you have to do something difficult and unpleasant together. And you've got you've, you've to work. You've got to face shared challenges together. That's my two cents. No, I'm a huge supporter, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, in Canada, they have folks plant trees. And so they go out in groups and there's either through forest fires or, or logging or whatever, there's a whole bunch of, of deforested places. And so they, young people go and they spend a summer doing this. And it's something that they can see progress being made and feel good about and helping their country at the same time. And so I think... Yeah, I'm certainly not a policy wonk, but maybe you could offer something similar in the, in the U.S. where they, there's something that, you know, whether it's a program I teach for America or some sort of environmental jobs that they could do. And then maybe that it you get a free ride to college, whatever college you get in is, is paid for if you do upwards of two, three, four years of national service or whatever, right? There are ways we could think through this creatively and have projects that both the right and the left could agree on that we need someone to really invest time and energy on. And in the process, I think we could really build some increased feelings and understanding of belonging and togetherness. And it sounds a little kumbaya, but really like we should try something at this point. Yeah, this is, that's the problem with this is that it sounds like, it sounds a little kumbaya. That's it. It, it like, it, it sounds a bunch of soft, namby-pamby, delicate, doily kind of stuff. Okay, fine. But like, we've got seeds of peace right? You send kids who are Palestinians and, and Israelis to camps together so that they can like have experiences and have bonds that are about something other than what their elders are fighting about. Seems like something maybe we could try here before the whole country explodes. Say the name of your Substack again, please. Uh, American Storylines, and you can find it at Substack. And you've got stuff coming up on science, trust, conspiracies, and vaccines in the next couple of weeks people can look out for. Yeah, I don't want to miss this one. We look at, at politics and education and religion and the declining post-pandemic trust in science landscape. So lots, 
to chew on there. You got a tease, you got a, you got a surprising finding that people are going to read about when they, when they subscribe and crack this open. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things is we're seeing some things that are not going to be surprised. It's still very polarized on a lot of these issues, but it, in a number of, of places, we're also seeing that it's not just politics, but education is playing a pretty critical role in some of these debates too. Fantastic. All right. Dr. Daniel Cox, thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. Absolutely. Enjoyed it.